Gridbox Media Programming is brought to you by... Introducing the redesigned CatholicSingles.com, featuring new ways that put the spotlight on the person and their faith, not just a profile picture. For the past 20 years, faithful Catholics have used CatholicSingles.com, and the reimagined CatholicSingles.com website is ready to help single Catholics take the next step in sharing meaningful relationships with other faithful Catholics. Remember, CatholicSingles.com, for faith, fellowship, and love. an Anglo-French writer born to a French father and an English mother in 1870. He was educated at the Birmingham Oratory School, which had been founded by John Henry Newman, and at Balliol College, Oxford. He was a powerfully built man with great stamina. He walked extensively in Britain and across Europe, and famously across the United States to woo his bride, Elodie Hogan, who was living in California. They married in 1896 and had five children. She died, sadly, in 1914 from influenza, and he also lost a son a few years later uh, in the First World War. He lost a second son during the Second World War, who died of pneumonia at the age of 36. So Belloc had a great amount of sadness in his life. He continued on, uh, lived to 1953, and was buried in the shrine of Our Lady of Consolation in West Grinstead in West Sussex. He was an extraordinary man. And I will be sharing with you uh, before each chapter just a little bit about his life and his biography. If you'd like to read biographies about him, it's written by my friend Joseph Pierce. It's called Old Thunder. We will be going through this book, Characters of the Reformation, as a follow-on from my 23-part series on church history called Triumphs and Tragedies. Why is it important to study the Reformation? Well, Hilaire Bullock's book is an excellent volume to study the Reformation, and the Reformation is important because it is the first revolution in 500 years of revolution. If you listen to Triumphs and Tragedies, you realize that at the end I summarized by saying that in these last 500 years, the human race and human history has gone through a series of revolutions. First, the revolution of the Protestant Reformation, but then the wars of religion that followed, and then the so-called Enlightenment, the uh, French Revolution, the Spanish Revolution, the Spanish Civil War, the uh, French Revolution, the Italian Revolution for uh, Italian unity, the American Revolution, and then, of course, the Industrial Revolution, the Technological revolution, the sexual revolution, all of these revolutions in the last 500 years really kicked off and started by the Protestant Reformation. So uh, we'll be studying the Protestant Reformation through various characters who typify this important period in history, and uh, Hilaire Belloc's style is uh, one which is very uh, winning 
He was, a, as I say, a controversialist. He was uh, pugnacious. He, he stood up for himself and he, and he made a clear point in his writing. And as I read, I will be not trying to imitate Hilaire Belloc's voice, but I will be assuming a voice which is suitable for his style. One which is clear, one which is direct, uh, one which doesn't pull any punches and makes the point very clearly. I may be stopping some of the way through and explaining a few details if I need to of perhaps geography or theology or history to be able to illuminate the text a little bit more as we go for readers who may not be quite as up to speed with all of those things as they wish they were. So as we move forward with the characters of the Reformation, I hope you will enjoy listening and that you will benefit from learning about the Reformation because it is the foundation of where we are today. We often have to go back and say, to understand the problems in the church today, to understand where we are today, we have to understand where we've come from. And so we will do that with Hilaire Belloc's Characters of the Reformation. In the introduction, he lays out some of the big ideas, some of the big uh, sweeping themes of the Reformation and the ideas of the Reformation, and, and also introduces us to the characters that he will be discussing each one in more detail in the chapters of the book. The Characters of the Reformation by Hilaire Belloc The Nature of the Reformation The breakup of united Western Christendom with the coming of the Reformation was by far the most important thing in history since the foundation of the Catholic Church 1500 years before. Men of foresight perceived at the time that if catastrophe were allowed to consummate itself, if the revolt were to be successful, and it was successful, our civilization would certainly be imperiled and possibly in the long run destroyed. That, indeed, is what has happened. Europe, with all its culture, is now seriously imperiled and stands no small chance of being destroyed by its own internal disruption. And all this is ultimately the fruit of the great religious revolution which began 400 years ago. That being so, the Reformation, being of this importance, ought to form the chief object of historical study in modern times, and its nature should be clearly understood, even if only in outline. Now, to understand the Reformation, it is not enough to appreciate how it arose and what sort of men conducted the battle on either side when the struggle had broken out. It is equally important, and perhaps more important, to appreciate that the affair went, like all great conflicts in history, through certain phases which perpetually recur in human disputes. All great conflicts begin with an uncertain phase during which one does not know whether which side will prevail or indeed whether either side will prevail. After that phase comes a second phase which may be one of two things. It may be the increasingly apparent victory of one side over the other or it might be a stalemate a drawn battle. Even if one of the two conflicting original opponents, either those who are for change or those who are for tradition, secures a victory, the result is affected by the struggle. No victory, however complete on the part of the conservatives, can make things return to exactly the same state they were before the challenge. No victory, however complete on the part of the revolutionaries, can ever wholly get rid of the past, which will always remain intertwined with the fiber of the men who were molded by it. But still, a complete victory on one side or the other does usually produce an enduring state of things. When there is a stalemate, that is a drawn battle, the result is otherwise. 
In that case, there continues a further series of changes due to the survival in power of both combatants. The two camps remain in activity, the one opposed to the other, reacting one against the other, and there will be consequently a chain of developments which continuously produces a new effect as the generations proceed. As an example of the first sort of thing, uh, a complete victory, uh, we have the success of our civilization against the Albigensians. That sect at one moment bid fair to break up Europe, but the Orthodox armies, the Orthodox monarchs, and leaders of the papacy won. The result was the secure state of affairs which made the Western world safe for Catholicism for centuries. An example of the opposite, of the drawn battle or stalemate, was the great Islamic effort beginning in the 7th century. It failed to overwhelm Christendom, but it had a sufficient success to establish a great new culture over against Europe and hostile to Europe, with the result that for centuries the two opponents remained intact and perpetually reacted one against the other. In the case of the Reformation, It looked at one moment as though the side of authority and tradition was going to have a complete victory, in which case we should have today a settled and secure Europe, again united in the Catholic faith. Unfortunately, that victory was never won, and the upshot of the struggle, after 130 years, was the division of European civilization into two halves, Protestant and Catholic. As for the third, the eastern part, the culture attaching to the Greek church, it did not much affect modern times between the outbreak of the Reformation and the rise of Russia 200 years ago. The universal, spiritual, and therefore social upheaval, generally called the Reformation, lasted from its inception to its conclusion as an open struggle for about 200 years. You may take 1688, the exile of James II, or 715, the failure of the Jacobite effort at a moment when there was still a living Catholic body in England, as the end of a conflict which clearly opens in the German revolt of 1517. I'll take a break from Hilaire Belloc here uh, to remind you that James II was the uh, Catholic king, the brother of Charles II, uh, the monarch of England. And James II was uh, a Stuart, a descendant of Mary, Queen of Scots, uh, who was actually Catholic. And he was deposed uh, and the Protestant kings, uh, monarchs, William and Mary, were put in his place. Uh, we'll talk more about that later, but that, I just wanted to remind you who James II was. And uh, Belloc uh, uses him as the end point of the Reformation. Back to Belloc. The Reformation runs through these stages. During the first 20 years or so, from 1517 onwards, the revolt against the Church was closely intermixed with a very legitimate determination to reform abuses in the Church. It was not easy to see on which side a man or a book uh, the argument might lay. There were grave corruptions in the church and grave discontent uh, with the church. This was especially the case in England, where the church was less corrupt than elsewhere and where the people were by nature conservative. But at the end of these 20 years, there came, around about 1536 to 1540, a change in what had hitherto been a confused movement. This change was primarily caused by the great effect of John Calvin. 
Luther, who set out with the greatest lucidity and unparalleled energy to form a counter-church for the destruction of the old church. He it was who really made the new religion wholly hostile to the old. At the same time, the temptation to loot church property and the habit of doing so had appeared and was growing, and this rapidly created a vested interest in promoting the change of religion. Those who attacked Catholic doctrine, as for instance in the matter of the celibacy of the monastic orders or a divinely appointed papacy, opened the door for the seizure of enormous clerical endowments. The monasteries, the episcopates, the, par the, par the parishes, all of these uh, were grabbed by the princes and city corporations. Men already individually powerful enough through their wealth especially through their ownership of land, joined in the rape of the church and the looting of the property. The property of convents and monasteries passed wholesale to the looters over great areas of Christendom. The endowments of hospitals, colleges, schools, and guilds were largely, though, not wholly seized. Those of the clergy and hierarchy, the land-supporting bishoprics and chapters and parish clergy, were all robbed from seven-eighths to half of their value. Such an economic revolution in so short a time our civilization had never seen. It had for effect the firm establishment of a permanent motive for confirming the success of the religious revolution. The new adventurers and the older gentry, who had so suddenly enriched themselves, saw in the return of Catholicism a peril to the immense new fortune which they had accumulated. It is about this time, therefore, that a generation after the first revolt, that there arises a distinct effort to impose in various places new laws and institutions to destroy Catholicism. After the middle of the 16th century, from about 1550 or 60, that change is clearly apparent, and with it, fighting begins, fighting on the part of Catholic Europe to suppress the new Protestant movement fighting on the part of the Protestant governments to suppress Catholicism in their own provinces, and in places, civil war between the two parties. But fighting goes on during all the second half of the century, roughly from 1550-60 to, say, 1605-1610. to There was fighting in Scotland, the beginning of what was to be an unending attempt to destroy Catholicism in Ireland, fighting in the Netherlands, but most and critical and most of Ireland of all was the fighting in France. On the issue of the religious wars in France depended the preservation or the destruction of all of Catholicism in Europe. Meanwhile, the Catholic forces in Europe had tardily woken up and there had been started what is generally called the Counter-Reformation. But neither the Counter-Reformation nor the active fighting which succeeded in preserving a part of Christendom intact would have been necessary except for the difficult success of the Protestant movement in England. This is the most important point to seize on in the story of this great religious revolution. The early enthusiasm for change was anarchic and dispersed. It had no form. It was a violence which was bound to burn itself out, especially as it was resisted by all the organized central authorities. All of them held out except for one province, Britain. England was captured for the revolutionary side, not by any desire on the part of her people, but by a succession of incidents which marked each of them a step, took each of them one step more and more 
in departure from the Catholic faith. First, on a matter in no way connected with the faith at all, the King of England, the most complete autocrat of his day, happened to quarrel with the Pope. The divorce of Henry VIII from his wife Catherine of Aragon, due to his infatuation with Anne Boleyn, began the business. It was conducted by a man of far greater ability than Henry, one Thomas Cromwell, an adventurer of high talent and no scruples. This Thomas Cromwell, Cromwell advised and carried out the confiscation of the monastic lands in England, a huge loot which was to be followed by further robbery of clerical endowments of every kind, including schools and colleges, Episcopal sees, parishes, and chapters. The new fortunes arising from this flood of confiscation determined the issue. At the outset of the last quarrel with the papacy, some few Englishmen had stood out for the supremacy of the Pope and the unity of Christendom. The most prominent was the best venerated St. Thomas More. Henry the King had for ecclesiastical agent in his divorce one Thomas Cranmer, whom he made Archbishop of Canterbury, and who proclaimed the schism with Rome, an ardent opponent of the whole Catholic scheme at heart, and particularly the Mass and Blessed Sacrament. Though as long as Henry lived, he dared not show his true feelings. A contrast to Cranmer, and typical of the official England of this time, which led a people confused and bewildered by the new papal quarrel, was Stephen Gardiner, Henry's Bishop of Winchester. When it was too late, and after Henry was dead, he was appalled to see where Henry's personal quarrel with the Pope had led, and Gardiner strongly affirmed his full Catholicism and attempted to reverse the course and save the faith of the country. Well, at Henry's death, a rickety child, his diseased little son Edward, nominally succeeded. Real power was, of course, in the hands of the unscrupulous men who formed the council, all of them Protestant, and all of them who had been enriched by the endowments uh, and the looting, the looting of the Catholic Church. While Edward died, and by Henry's will, his half-sister Catherine of Aragon's daughter, Mary Tudor, succeeded. She was Catholic, and was received with wild popular rejoicing as the restorer of the old national religion of Englishmen and the legitimate queen. To save the country from Franco-Scottish domination, she married Philip of Spain. The marriage was not popular, and the English council, against the advice of Philip, would show their independence against him. Unfortunately, after a brief reign of a half a dozen years, Mary died, and her half-sister Elizabeth, the daughter of Anne Boleyn, succeeded her. Elizabeth was accepted with the greater ease that she had professed Catholicism loudly. During Elizabeth's long reign, she stood contrasted with and opposed to Mary Stuart, Mary Queen of Scots, who stood for the old religion, and against whom, after a brief reign, her subjects in Scotland rebelled. She took refuge in England, where she was kept imprisoned until she was put to death many years later. But the true author of the great change which comes with Elizabeth I and gains strength as her long reign proceeds was a man of exceptional genius, William Cecil. He it was who, with Philip of Spain, put Elizabeth on the throne and ruled in her name. He saw that his new wealth was in danger so long as Catholicism remained strong in England and proceeded to stamp it out. He it was who effected that gradual and profound change in English affairs by which the country was lost to the faith.
that severance of England from Europe and from Christendom was, as I have said, the pivotal matter of the Protestant advance. On it, the partial success of the religious revolution everywhere depended. Hence, the necessity for beginning by an understanding of the English tragedy, failing which the disruption of Europe and all of our modern chaos would never have appeared. It was coincidentally with the beginning of the turnover in England with the second half of the 16th century that there began that effort against shipwreck, which I have said is generally called the Counter-Reformation. Vigorous popes undertook, unfortunately, too late, the reform of abuses. The Franciscans took on a new missionary activity for the recovery of districts lost to the faith. A general council, which the popes before the Reformation had especially avoided, because only a little while before general councils had proved so dangerous to unity, was summoned and is known to history as the Council of Trent. The most important single factor in the whole of this reaction was the militant and highly disciplined body proceeding from the genius of St. Ignatius Loyola. It came to be known by the name which was first a nickname, but later generally adopted of the Jesuits. These, by their discipline, singleness of aim, and heroism, were the spearhead of the counterattack. They were very nearly successful in England. They had very great effect in southern Germany and Poland and in the New World, and all these forces combined made for a general restoration of a healthy Catholicism. There followed, uh, during the 17th century, from about 1600 to 1615, and 1690 to 1700, a ding-dong struggle between the now-rooted new religion in the areas where governments had gone Protestant and the remaining Catholic bulk of Europe. The effort to recover England had failed. Scandinavia had been turned over just as England had, under the impulse of those who saw their opportunity for looting church lands and their determination to keep this booty after the wealth had been seized. The northern part of the Netherlands, which have since come to be known as Holland, still maintained itself with difficulty against its lawful sovereign, the King of Spain. But in Europe as a whole, the tide was setting for a restoration of Catholicism, which might have been universal. In England, such a restoration was rendered more difficult by the character of James I's reign. James I was the son of Mary, Queen of Scots. He reigned from 1603 to 1625. In France, the return was rendered more possible by the character of the contemporary French King Henry IV, who was assassinated in 1610. It is with these two that the story of the drawn battle in the 17th century opens. It is Henry IV of France, yielding to the pressure of Paris and saved Catholicism in that country. James I of England, guided and run by the second Cecil, William Cecil's son Salisbury, was the man under whom, at the critical moment, England was prevented from becoming Catholic again. Next, the Emperor Ferdinand in Germany, set out on a kind of crusade for establishing his own authority, which had dwindled so much in the past, and at the same time for spreading Catholicism again in the parts of Germany where it had been lost. Though Catholicism in France had been saved, yet the French had always lived in dread of the power of the Germans and the empire to the east of them. Therefore, when it looked as though Emperor Ferdinand was going to become the very powerful monarch of a united Germany, France, 
although as Catholic as he, determined to support his Protestant rebels against him in order to undermine him. The French minister, who before history, uh, for the fa- who is responsible before history for the failure of the Counter Reformation, is the great Cardinal Richelieu. He found ready to his hand a singular instrument. The sparsely populated Protestant districts of Scandinavia had produced a soldier of genius, the King of Sweden, Gustavus Adolphus. Richelieu put the financial resources of France at work to hire Gustavus Adolphus as an instrument for weakening the German Empire and the Catholic reaction led by the Emperor Ferdinand. Gustavus Adolphus changed the art of war by his immense talent. During one dazzling year of triumph, he very nearly established a Protestant German Empire more than two centuries before Bismarck. But at the height of his success, he was killed in battle in 1632. His effect, however, had been sufficient to prevent the emperor from ever achieving a complete victory and from ever recruiting the Germans into one Catholic body. Meanwhile, the power of Spain was declining, and the Dutch, in what was later to be Holland, succeeded in getting their independence recognized by the King of Spain, who was their original sovereign. In England, the new Protestant character of the country was divided. You had one tendency expressed in uh, Archbishop Laud, the other expressed in the character of Oliver Cromwell. Oliver Cromwell and his colleagues, representing the more intense Calvinist spirit, won a civil war which put an end to the old popular English monarchy, and during which the victors put Archbishop Laud, the Archbishop of Canterbury, to death. But the main significance of Cromwell is this that in spite of the overwhelming superiority he enjoyed in equipment and trained men, he failed to destroy Catholic Catholic Ireland. He did his best, but he only massacred. And what was far more effective, he seized the land of the Irish and ruined Catholicism economically where it had been strongest. Yet he failed, and his failure was to prove of vast import to the fortunes of the faith, especially in the 19th century. By the middle of the 17th century, the struggle between Catholicism and the now enthusiastic spirit which had challenged Catholicism had definitely accepted a drawn battle, a tie, a stalemate. The Treaties of Westphalia in 1648 established the principle that subjects should follow the religion of their government, and within the next 10 years, all Europe settled down into two camps, the Catholic on the one side and the Protestant on the other. The Catholic culture was therefore partially saved, but it had failed to recover Europe as a whole, and within the Church arose new movements which the Reformation had started. At the origin of one of these was the great name of Descartes, as the origin of the other the great name of Pascal. Descartes was a man of the first half of the 17th century. Pascal belonged to a generation immediately younger. Descartes was almost exactly the contemporary of Cromwell, but of course a far greater man with an infinitely greater effect upon civilization. Descartes introduced that idea which has dominated European thought ever since, and has had such powerful effects upon the Catholic Church itself, which may be called, in the best sense of the word, rationalism. The new expansion of physical science had begun with the 16th century and had proceeded rapidly. It had been especially noticeable in the domain of astronomy, 
and astronomy is just that science in which we see the great laws of nature working, as it were, inexorably and on the largest scale. Moreover, astronomy is dominated by mathematics. Descartes set himself out to examine the whole nature of things, that is, to make a complete philosophy. The Catholic Church is itself a complete philosophy on all that concerns the chief interest of man, but the Catholic Church does not set up to provide a philosophical system, still less a philosophical system which shall be necessarily true in its explanation of the material universe. Scholasticism, as it is called, or Thomism, from the great final work of Thomas Aquinas, might be called the official philosophy of the Church, as it had stood throughout the later Middle Ages. But it was, and is, important to distinguish, distinguish between this official acceptation of Thomism and the invariable teaching authority of the faith. Now, Thomism had naturally declined with the decline of the Middle Ages. Scholastic disputation had degraded into what were often puerilities and debates nearly always tedious and half the time futile. It was indeed discussed with the dryness and lack of vitality of the school teaching which had largely accounted for revolt among the younger scholars. Descartes, a whole lifetime after the beginning of the Reformation, set out to begin, if he could, the whole thing over again, to ask and settle all those questions which scholastic philosophy had also examined from the very roots. He even started with the discussion as to whether man himself, the mind originating the discussion, existed or not. He took as his starting point the undoubted truth that since a man thinks he is, and on that he would base his system. In the expansion of that system, he insisted upon the only accepted knowledge that is proven, and that is where he and so great an in had such a great influence upon all the thought which followed for three hundred years. For all the modern scientific habit until that of yesterday proceeded from Descartes. He himself had no doubts upon the faith, but his insistence upon the axiom that our acceptance of the truth must depend upon external proof of it, or upon deductive reasoning, did make profound inroads upon ordinary belief, and it was from this attitude of mind that all that is called rationalistic began to attack the church. Now Pascal, on the other hand, had nothing to do with all this. He was right on the other wing, which bases religion on emotion. Protestantism, and particularly Calvinism, although Calvinism also is a strictly logical system, is essentially based upon subjective emotion and personal experience. A religious truth is known to be true not on external evidence, nor through deductive reasoning, but because you have experienced it. Hence, the typically Calvinist business of conversion, or the sense of being saved. Pascal, of course, did not accept such heresy, but he stood for a sort of compromise with it. Now, after the vivid object lesson of the Reformation in action, men could see the danger of breaking with unity. But many of the most intense minds within the Catholic culture, and especially in France, and what is called today Belgium, though they had a horror of Calvinism, were attracted to this factor of religious experience, irritated by the constraints of an authoritative church and its practice, which they found to be merely mechanical. Further, the great effect of the Jesuits had been to recover Europe for the faith by making every sort of allowance, trying to understand by sympathy to attract the worldly and the sensual and all the indifferent, and insisting the whole time on the absolute necessity of loyalty to the church. 
Defend the unity of the church and talk of other things afterwards. Preserve the church which was in peril destruction, and only then, when you have leisure, after the battle, debate other things. This being the Jesuit attitude, and the Jesuits having become by far the chief influence in the mid-17th century throughout Catholic Europe, those men in Catholic Europe who leaned towards emotion in religion and personal experience, almost towards what the Calvinist enemy called conversion. They chose the Jesuits as their special antagonists. A powerful writer in the Netherlands called Jansen stood for all of this. He wrote a book based upon St. Augustine, and that book represented the reaction of Calvinism upon the Catholic Church. Jansenism, as it was called, stood for all that swing, even in its extremes, that the great Pascal, as Descartes had been. But what Descartes was not, a genius at writing, took up the cudgels for Jansenism. Pascal did not know his subject well. He had to be coached, and most of what he wrote in his famous pamphlets shows ignorance of, of his authorities. Also, his Puritanism could not survive. But his style had the principal effect which all good writing always has, and by that he still lives. From these two men, Pascal and Descartes, preceded the two strains of influence which between them threatened to wreck the Catholic culture. Rationalism was its product, and first the deism and then the atheism of generations not yet born. Meanwhile, two other things were at work, which would also f figure in the future against the Catholic culture in Europe. The first was nationalism, the second was the growth in wealth and power of the anti-Catholic Protestant culture in the West. Nationalism began not in the worship of the nation, but in the worship of the prince. As in the case of Jansenism, the Catholics could not accept nationalism fully, but flirted with its ideas. Thus, in the case of the all-powerful king worship, which is rampant all through the Reformation period, the Catholic could not accept the full Protestant doctrine of the divine right of kings, but those inclined towards this error went so far as they could and made a great idol of King Louis XIV of France. He was a boy in the middle of the 17th century, and he died several years after its close. He was the greatest power in all the latter half of that long lifetime of his. From, say, 1660 to 1715, Louis XIV of France meant more to Europe of his time than the British governing class to the Europe of the later 19th century. The King of France could never break with Catholic unity, of course. Indeed, in a sense, he was the champion of Catholicism. Now that Spain, the old champion of Catholicism, was in decay, and that France itself had broken the power of Catholic Germany. But though he was the champion of Catholicism, he also went so far as he possibly could, short of breaking with the Holy See, insisting on the independence of his own power as the king. Louis XIV, then, represented this force of separate independent national claims, disintegrating the Catholic culture from within. Meanwhile, the House of Orange especially represented the force militating against the Catholic culture from without. And of the House of Orange, William of Orange, who usurped the English throne and was contemptuously allowed by the English wealthy families to replace the last Catholic and active King of England, James II, was also the contemporary of Louis XIV. William of Orange was in England only a puppet king, Men laughed at him and disliked him, but he was the symbol of a growing anti-Catholicism. 
With the typical figures here selected, I shall, to the best of my ability, fill my gallery, taking in their order first the English figures of that foundational affair, the loss of England. Then, in their order, arise King Henry the Eighth, his queen, Catherine, his lover, Anne Boleyn, his minister-master, Thomas Cromwell, Sir Thomas More, Thomas Cranmer, Gardiner, Pope Clement the Seventh, Queens Mary and Elizabeth, Tudor, the Mary Elizabeth, Mary Tudor, Mary Stuart, and the great William Cecil. I next will describe the men of the seventeenth century in the drawn battle of stalemate. Henry the Fourth of France, James the First of England, the Emperor Ferdinand, Gustavus Adolphus and Richelieu, then Lord. And to illustrate the internal difficulties of Protestantism, which unfortunately did not prove fatal to it, then Oliver Cromwell, and I shall finally consider Descartes and Pascal, and lastly William of Orange and Louis the Fourteenth. And at that point we conclude the introduction to Hilaire Belloc's Characters of the Reformation. He's given us an overview of the big picture, the big themes, the big um, strands of history uh, for those 200 years. And in the next chapter, we shall begin uh, with Henry VIII and the important events of the English Reformation. This has been Characters of the Reformation by Hilaire Bullock. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker. I'm glad you're listening, and I encourage you to go to my blog, Standing on My Head, to be found at dwightlongenecker.com. There you can find my regular blog posts, you can browse my books, you can be in touch, and you can also listen to some of my other podcasts. Thank you for listening. Breadbox Media Programming is brought to you by Jack Kane Ford. Find your next Ford Tough vehicle at caneford.com. Woodhill Community Center. Have a hand in the heart of the city. Support their mission with your donations at woodhillcommunitycenter.org. Toyota in Nicholasville Superstore. Online consultants are standing by right now to help you find your next Toyota. Visit toyotaonnicholasville.com. Lexus of Lexington. Home of the best-selling Lexus IS. Find yours today at LexusOfLexington.com.